can turn this morning to Daniel chapter 6. You remember last week that we talked about uh, Daniel chapter 3 and how Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were uh, uh, cast into the fiery furnace because they wouldn't bow before the idols made by King Nebuchadnezzar. And we talked about how the people of God are called to have confidence in God at all times, that we would be a people who would be confident that our God is going to work in our hearts, that he's going to carry us through, that he's going to help us to endure suffering, that in the midst of them being in the furnace, that they uh, uh, had a fourth person there with them who carried them through the flames. Now, they weren't; uh, they still had to go through the flames. They were still in the midst of the flames, but they had somebody with them to carry them through the flames. So having confidence in God is not just simply a, a wishful hope that something might happen, but it is an absolute confidence and boldness that uh, we, we are people who live in the presence of God, and He is able, as the Word of God says, to do immeasurably more than we could ask or imagine. Uh, and we're going to go a little bit farther in the idea of having confidence in God and then living for Him in that confidence today, though. Uh, in Daniel chapter 6, <clears throat> just starting at verse 1, says, It pleased Darius to appoint 100, uh, 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom with three administrators over them, one of whom was Daniel. The satraps were made accountable to them so that the king might not suffer loss. Now Daniel was so distinguished uh, himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. At this, the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his in his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Finally, these men said, We will never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with the law of his God. So the administrators and the satraps went as a group to the king and said, O king Darius, live forever. The royal administrators, prefects, satraps, advisors, governors have all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any god or man during the next 30 days except you, O king, shall be thrown into the lion's den. Now, O king, issue the decree and put it in writing so that it cannot be altered in accordance with the laws of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be repealed. So King Darius put the decree in writing. Now, when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows uh, where the windows opened towards Jerusalem. Three times a day he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he had done before. Then these men went as a group and found Daniel praying and asking God for help. So they went to the king and spoke to him about his royal decree. Did you not publish a decree that during the next 30 days, anyone who prays to any god, or man except you, O king, would be thrown into the lion's den. The king answered, The decree stands in accordance with the laws of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be repealed. Then they said to the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or to the decree that you put in writing. He still prays three times a day. When the king heard this, he was greatly distressed. He was determined to rescue Daniel and made every effort until sundown to save him. 
Then the men went as a group to the king and said to him, Remember, O king, that according to the law of the Medes and Persians, no decree or edict that the king issues can be changed. So the king gave the order, and they brought Daniel and threw him into the lion's den. The king said to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve, continually rescue you. A stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den, and the king, was, the king sealed it with his own signet ring, with the rings of his nobles, so that uh, Daniel's situation might not be changed. Then the king returned to his palace and spent the night without eating and without any entertainment being brought to him, and he could not sleep. At the first light of dawn, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den. When he came near the den, he called to Daniel in an anguished voice, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to rescue from the lions? Daniel answered, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel, and he shut the mouths of the lions. They have not hurt me, because I was found innocent in his sight, nor have I ever done anything wrong before you, O king. Uh, so, again, looking at the idea this morning, just simply of having confidence in God. And uh, as we talked about before, there's something that has to happen in the lives of believers in Christ that prepares us for the moments of suffering, for the moments where we're going to be confronted with, whether it was last week looking in chapter 3 where you're confronted with the furnace or whether it's this being thrown into a lion's den. There's something that has to happen in the lives of believers, a preparation period that builds us up for those moments that are going to be coming in our lives where we're going to experience pain and suffering or uh, the opportunity to compromise. Uh, you see, there was, there was, in this moment, we see what we see in the book of Daniel is a group of young people who was, uh, uh, they were leaders in, uh, uh, in Israel. And when the uh, Babylonian kingdom uh, overcame Judah and Israel in that moment, they carried off some of those high ranking people. And they used them in their own kingdom. They put them in positions of influence in their own kingdom. Uh, in that moment, every one of those young people we see in Daniel chapter 1, that they all had the opportunity to compromise. And we'll go through that a little bit more as we go further through this today. But one of the simple things that we see in Daniel chapter 1 is that when the young people were brought to the kingdom of Babylon, one of the first things that they did was gave them new names. They changed their names from uh, names that would have been uh, prevalent in the Jewish culture. They gave them names that would have reflected the culture of Babylon at the time. So simple things like that, that the Babylonians brought these men in, placed them in high positions, and immediately started to try to change the culture of those men. Uh, but what we see through this passage of Scripture is the uncompromising nature of the faith that was contained in the hearts of those young men. Uh, so one of the first things that we have to understand when we see this, in order to understand everything that we see in the Old Testament has some sort of meaning for us. There's nothing that we read in the Word of God that isn't relevant to us today. Every single thing that we read is relevant to us. Uh, to understand what we are talking about spiritually today, we see, we see this picture of what was happening in the lives of Daniel as friends in that moment, but it means something for us spiritually today. And to be able to understand that, we have to understand what the Word of God says about uh, Babylon as a city. So we're going to go through just a few things about the Bible, how it contrasts Babylon with another city that we see the Bible talks about, the city of God. Uh, in the beginning, we see this about uh, God's city in Psalm 46. 
verses four, verses four and five, it says, "There's a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy dwelling place of the Most High. God is in the midst of her; she will not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns." And we see in Revelation chapter twenty-one, it says, "And I saw the holy city, the New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband." Then we see in Hebrews chapter eleven. But as, but as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. So we see, first of all, in the word of God, that he has prepared a city for his people. Now, it might not necessarily be talking about a literal, literal physical city. That's what we see people looking for sometimes, is they're looking for off in the distance in the, in the country of Israel, in Jerusalem, that there will be established uh, a Jewish reign that will overcome other political kingdoms and all of those things, and people are looking for a literal city. Now, what we're talking about here, what the Word of God is actually talking about, is a spiritual city that the people of God would become part of. The moment that we receive salvation, we are ushered into the kingdom of God. We are made a citizen of the kingdom of God. And the Bible says that Christ stands before you an open door that no one can shut. You don't step into that kingdom based on somebody voting you into church membership. There's nothing like that. The moment that we are washed pure by the blood of Christ, we become part of that city, that kingdom of God. It is not because of anything anyone else has done. It is not because of my power. It is simply because I allow myself to become obedient and receive what Christ has offered me. Uh, I was reading this morning, just, uh, you remember the passage where the man that had the uh, the issue with his arm and Christ told him to, to extend his arm to him and he healed uh, the issues with his arm. But all of the power to transform what was happening with that man came from Christ. The man did nothing, but he had to extend his arm. So what we're saying in salvation and being a member of the kingdom of God, everything that God has to offer us, it is not out of my power. I receive the grace, the mercy that God has extended to me on, on a daily basis. It is because of Him. But you see, my responsibility is to step into it. I don't have power to, I don't have power to, to change anything in myself. I don't have power to enter the kingdom of God myself, but I have power. Uh, the, the Spirit of God empowers me to receive what has been offered to me. The same way as Christ healed the man's arm, but the man had to extend his arm. It was the simple act of extending his arm allowed Christ to be able to transform that man's life. So, exactly, obedience is what leads us to receiving the blessings that God uh, has available to his people. So, the city of God, that's what we're talking about here, is uh, the motivation for Daniel and his friends to live a life of faith in spite of all the reasons that they had to compromise, all of the opportunities to compromise, is because they were living for a different city. I want to talk just for a moment about Babylon and the things that they were confronted with. Uh, so we see all through the Word of God then uh, the city of God, but then we see another city. We see throughout the Word of God that Babylon was used to represent uh, rebellion against God. Uh, and rebel rebellion can take many different forms. But simply in the beginning, we see that Babylon was, uh, the word Babylon means confusion. The word itself means confusion. And if you go back to the beginning of Babylon, you will see in Genesis tap, chapter 10, it's the same word. This is where the account of the Tower of Babel. But Babel and Babylon, they both mean the same things. The words mean confusion. But in Genesis chapter 10, 
Starting verse 1, we see, uh, Now the whole world had, had one language and common speech. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, Come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. Uh, they used bricks instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we'll be, we'll be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to the city and the tower the people were building. The Lord said, if, one, uh, if as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language uh, so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there all over the earth, and they stopped building the city. That is why it is called Babel, because the Lord confused the language of the whole world. Uh, from, the Lord, from there, the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. So we have in that moment, we have this, uh, this, this uh, primitive city being born, being started, where these people, this was right after, uh, we see the accounts in the Word of God of the great flood and all of that was happening there. And God's command to Moses and his descendants then was to, uh, multiply and spread throughout the earth. You see, what was happening in this moment was their refusal to do what God told them to do. It was their rebellion against God causing a flood, and it was a rebellion against what God was asking them to do. It says in this moment that they would all stay in one place, they would stay there, and they would build a tower to the heavens. Uh, so what they were doing in that moment was... Uh, rebelling against what God had done and what he was asking them, they were trying to make a name for themselves and ascend to the heavens to become, uh, exalt themselves, to glorify themselves. And the Bible says then that they were cast into confusion by God. The word Babel or Babylon means confusion. So the people trying to exalt themselves ended up uh, being a people living in confusion then. We see then in Revelation chapter 17, Starting in verse 3, it says, Then the angel carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. Then I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous, blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet and was glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls. She held a golden cup in her hand filled with uh, abominable things in the filth of her adulteries. The name written on her forehead was a mystery. Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and of the abominations of the earth. So all throughout the word of God, we see this, this uh, city, Babel or Babylon, being presented as this place of confusion, or as it said, the mother of, of uh, prostitutes, the abominations of the, of the earth. And you understand the Bible uses this imagery over and over, the imagery of the people who would be walking in faithfulness of God, then prostituting them out themselves out to other forms of religion. That's what, that's what God likens it to when the people who are faithful to him would start to look to other things to gain power, to, to gain some sort of provision. Or the Bible says over and over that the, the Israelites, uh, we see that actually one of the reasons that they were in exile was because the Israelites would seek uh, the protection of other countries. I believe it was Egypt in that moment. But the point is that the people who are faithful to God should be looking off to Him, gaining their strength, their power, everything from Him, but they start to look to other people or things for protections. They start to offer their hearts to idols, 
or, or anything else, they allow it to take God's rightful position in their hearts. And you understand that all through the Word of God, we see that imagery used where people, God likens that to people prostituting them up, themselves to other things. Now, those are things we might not want to talk about today. Those are things that might not be popular to talk about today. But that's the imagery that God uses. Whether we like that imagery or not, God sees it the same way. That his people who should be faithful, walking in faithfulness to him, would offer themselves freely to whoever, for whatever their purposes want to be. So all through the word of God, we see then that Babylon is used in that way to to represent confusion uh, and captivity, idolatry, offering your heart that is rightly for God, offering that to other things, to idols, or to other people, to other governments, whatever it is. Uh, So I just want to look at a few things that we see through uh, Daniel and his friends in the ways that they were confronted with the things of Babylon, but then they had it in their heart to be faithful to God, and they resisted all of those things that they were confronted with. In Daniel chapter 1, we see again simply that Babylon... uh, is the city that represents captivity in chapter 1. In verse 1, it says, In the third year of the reign of King Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hands, along with some of the articles uh, from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. So the point in that is that the Israelites were doing things that led to their captivity. As I said, they were seeking comfort. They were seeking protection from other countries. They were uh, worshiping idols themselves. As the Word of God says, they were offering their hearts to other things in that moment. And it says that that God ultimately raised up Babylon to come and and overtake uh, Israel and carry them off into captivity. The point of this is that sinful things that we choose to indulge in or choose to participate in they lead to captivity you see we have a way today of thinking that the small things we consider it a small thing sometimes some of the sinful things that we do not understanding the word of god says that sinful things wage war against our souls there's not any kind of sinful thing that humanity can do that its end goal isn't to destroy you Every single thing that Satan offers to us, it's not a small thing. It is meant to destroy the foundations of who you are. My very existence in Christ, my desire to know Him, all of those things, it is meant to wage war against all that Christ wants to do in you and I. So we have to understand that sinful things lead to captivity the same way that Israel was pursuing sinful things and then they went off into captivity in Babylon. So Babylon the city of Babylon. Now understand that in these moments, we were talking about a physical place at that time, but today we're talking about a spiritual Babylon. I'm not not saying literally Babylon, but the same spirit, the same kind of things that we see in Babylon are prevalent and present in the world today, and people have the opportunity to be taken into that same kind of captivity, to become captive to sin, that some people would live their whole lives in this prison of sin that they have created for themselves. That's what we're talking about today. Uh, with the second thing we see here in uh, uh, Babylon, again, is back to the Tower of Babel in verse 4. It says in Genesis 10, 
4, it says, Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city with the tower that reaches the heavens, so we may become what we may make a name for ourselves, otherwise we would be scattered over the whole earth. Uh, so building a tower uh, to reach the heavens, they were trying to create a name for themselves. So the second thing that we see in Babylon is mankind trying to exalt themselves. And we see this all throughout the world today. People trying to gain positions of authority. People, we see it now in our, in our politics. People, people in the same party even fighting with each other because they want to be the one who ends up president. That's all it is anymore. Everybody attacking. And the, the thing is, a year ago, they were probably best friends. They had nothing negative to say to each other. But now all of a sudden, because we're competing for a certain position, I'm going to find everything I can to say about you. You see, man exalting himself always leads to destruction. We see this in the life of King Nebuchadnezzar then in Daniel chapter 4. It says, 12 months later, as King Nebuchadnezzar uh, was walking on the roof of the royal palace in Babylon, he said, is not this the great Babylon I have built as a royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? And we know in that moment then the word of God says that God came and he humbled Nebuchadnezzar. He said, it's all of the things that I have done, I've done this for my majesty and my power. Every time man begins to exalt himself, it ends in destruction. The next thing we see in Babylon is simply idolatry. In chapter 3, this is what we were looking at last week. Uh, Daniel chapter 3, starting in verse 1, it says, King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. And then verse 4 Then the herald loudly proclaimed, Nations and peoples of every language, this is what you are commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into the blazing fire. Uh, You understand that in that moment they were talking about a physical representation of what they conceived the gods to be. That they had some sort of idol, like some, some literal idol that was in front of the people that they were supposed to bow themselves before uh, and offer uh, worship and homage to that idol. But you see, the idolatry is not limited to some physical statue. It's not, it's not limited to something that we just set before everybody and say, okay, now be, bow before this. A.W. Tozer said this of idolatry. He said, let us beware lest in our pride we accept the erroneous notion that idolatry consists only in kneeling before visible objects of adoration and that civilized people were therefore free from it. The essence of idolatry is the entertainments of thoughts about God that are unworthy of him. It begins in the mind and may be present where no overt act of worship has taken place. When they knew God, wrote Paul, they neither glorified him as God or were thankful but became vain in their imaginations and their foolish heart was darkened. So he is saying that we cannot think that it is limited to these physical idols that people bow before, but where we stop thinking rightly of who God is, when we reduce him from who he is, that is the moment where we step into idolatry. The Bible says, or I'm sorry, A.W. Tozer said uh, in another book that he said that left to himself, man will immediately reduce God to manageable terms. 
That if we're not pursuing uh, the Spirit of God, if we're not pursuing an understanding of who God is through His Word, through His Spirit, through communion with Him, if we are left to ourselves, we will immediately reduce Him to something that we can manage. And you see, when I stop pursuing an understanding of Him that comes from Him, that is the moment that I step into idolatry because I begin creating a God in my own image. Now, I have heard people... Uh, I've heard, I've talked to people that have done this. Uh, we were on a mission trip a couple years ago, and there was somebody. Uh, I can. She's probably not going to listen to this, right? I always hesitate to say things that we're recording. Uh, but she was saying, you know, I, 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 I don't really you know, read the Word of God, I just kind of do whatever I think God would want me to do. You know, I I treat people how I think God would want me to treat them. But you understand, that is living your life based on a God that you have created in your own mind. We have to resist the urge to create a God that is manageable and then try to live out of that. We have to step into God's presence so that he is, first of all, he is not something that we are ever going to be able to manage. Not his church, not us individually. We will never be able to manage God. But we have to be able to step into the depths of who he is. The Bible says the unsearchable riches of Christ. Step into those things, though they are unknown to us until we experience them in his presence. There is a fear we have sometimes of stepping into the things that we don't know. That's why we want to start managing God. But you see, we have to resist that urge and step into the depths of who God is and allow him to work in us however he would. But you see, the moment I start trying to orchestrate God's work on my own and I reduce him from his position of sovereignty and transcendence, when I reduce him from that, I have immediately stepped into the place of idolatry. You see, we see that in Babylon. The same spirit that was in Babylon was the spirit of idolatry. And it can be uh, in people who call themselves the people of God today. Next thing we see is making profane the sacred things of God. God has ordained things as sacred in this world. There are things that God has made and called them good. But though they were made good, people still have the opportunity to use those good things for profane purposes. To use them for their own purposes. We see in Daniel chapter 5, starting verse 1, it says, King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. While Belshazzar was drinking his wine, uh, he gave orders to bring in gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem so that the king and his nobles, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. So they brought in the gold goblets that had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. And they drank, as they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver and bronze and iron, wood and stone. You see what was happening in this moment was, in Jerusalem in that moment, they worshipped through the temple. They would go to the temple, they would offer sacrifices, all of these things, to God. The temple in the Old Covenant, the temple of God, was the symbol of God's abiding presence in the Israelites. That was where God dwelled in those people. And you see these 
the people from Babylon, they came in and they took uh, the sacred things that were in the temple of God, the place of God's presence among Israel. They took things from that temple and they took it to their own country. And the first king, Nebuchadnezzar, just put it off in storage. But this king took those things and brought them for himself. And they began to use the things of God for profane purposes. And we're going to talk about that more in a couple weeks. But the point is that there are things that God has called good that we have the opportunity to use in a negative way. And as the people of God, we have to make sure that we pursue uh, the sacredness of God and allow ourselves to hold the things of God in high esteem. There are some things sometimes that we don't think are really that big of a deal that I think in the eyes of God it's sacred. Whether we think it's a big deal or not, this is sacred. The Bible says uh, uh, that, uh, you know, we see in uh, even, it's called the Lord's Prayer, but it's really the disciples' prayer. But uh, the beginning of it says, uh, it says, Hallowed be your name. That was in the beginning of that prayer. It says, Hallowed be your name. That means holy, set apart is your name. See, there are things that are sacred that the people should hold in high esteem because it comes from God and he has called it good. Uh, so we see all of these things in Babylon that it symbolizes captivity, idolatry, the exalting of man, profaning the sacred things of God. But we see these young men who were brought out of their country into the land of the Babylonians. They were placed in high positions, but in spite of all of that they had, they still chose to continue living in faithfulness uh, to all that God had for them, to the city that they were really living for. You see, they came out of Jerusalem, which was in that time, the physical city of God, the place where God dwelt. But they were living, though they were in the midst of Babylon, though they were in the midst of the place where there was confusion all around them, there was captivity, there was idolatry, all of these things that surrounded them, they were still living for the city where God dwelt. And you understand that is the call of God on the lives of his people today, that though I live in this place where there's confusion and captivity all around me, Though people would exalt themselves and try to get the highest positions around me, though people would offer their hearts not just to physical manifestations of, of idols, but they would offer themselves to, to trying to gain fame or trying to gain houses or cars or some sort of position, though they would offer themselves an idolatry to those things. You see, my allegiance should be to the city of God. My eyes should constantly be looking to the things of God. The Bible says, set your minds, your hearts on things above, where your life is hidden with Christ in God. You see, though I'm in the midst of all of these things, and every day have the opportunity to compromise for some reason, my heart and my mind should be hidden in the place where God dwells. The Bible says, with Christ in God, that is where my life my source of life, my source of joy, my source of happiness, all of that comes from the place where Christ dwells now. In the midst of this, we see, again, that Daniel and his friends were pressured to give up 
their Jewish heritage, as we said in the beginning, when they were brought into Babylon, one of the first things uh, that the king wanted to do was to change their names, to reflect names of Babylon. Next we see in Daniel chapter 1, in verse 3 it says, Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. Young men without physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that they were to enter the king's service. And then in verse 8 it says, But Daniel resolved himself not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this, in this way. So in the midst of him being brought into this place and having to go through the education of Babylon, having to go through uh, a change in name, all of those things, whatever he could possibly do, it says he resolved himself not to be defiled. And you see, that's what I was talking about in the beginning is there was something that was going on in the heart of Daniel before that moment. He didn't just get up that day and then all of a sudden decided, well, am I going to choose God or am I going to choose the things of Babylon? He had made that decision long before he was standing in that moment. He had already made the resolution in his mind, in his heart, that he was going to live for the city of God, whether he was in the city of God, the physical place at that time, or whether he was in Babylon, wherever he was, he had resolved himself that he was going to live for God's purposes. And you understand today what we are talking about, I know I've said this over and over, but the Bible promises that we are going to go through moments of pain and suffering. It is going to happen. You don't have to question that. It's going to happen. You see, the question is, have you resolved in your heart at this point to walk in the sacred things of God, to walk for the city of God, to live for that city? Because all of this time that I am walking towards the moment of suffering, my heart should be being prepared and strengthened and built up because when that moment comes... That is not the moment to start deciding whether you're going to choose God or choose something else. That decision happens long before the moment of testing. We have to make a decision in my heart today. I'm going to live for the city of God and do what it takes then to be built up in that. Meaning that I'm going to pursue the things of God, that I'm going to be filled with the things of God. Uh, We talked at uh, uh, the winter retreat for the youth. Jamie and I were able to go a couple of weeks and weekends ago, or was it last weekend? I don't know when it was. Uh, last weekend. Uh, it seems like everything kind of blurs together at this point. But uh, we were talking about the breastplate of righteousness. I was telling them that that what righteousness simply means in its its most simple terms is that my relationship with God, with God would be brought to a place of being right. And then my relationships with other people would be in a place of being right. We were broken. There is something in us that is broken. But God comes through his spirit 
and restores in mankind what is broken and brings back the state of right, rightness between him and I and then uh, between myself and other people. It is having a right relationship with God and right relationship with other people. You see, when I do that, when I am walking in that, God is building up my spirit. I have to, in that moment, to walk in righteousness, it is linked, if you read that passage, it is inextricably linked to truth. It says, take up the belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness. They are linked together. If you are walking in truth, you will walk in righteousness. If you are walking in righteousness, you will have to walk in truth. You cannot separate the two. But you see, when I pursue the truth of God, the Bible refers to the truth of God, his word, as the bread of life. Christ is the bread of life. I don't, and he also said, I don't live on uh, all of these things. I don't live, I don't need food or water. I don't need those things. I live on every word that comes from the mouth of God. You see, what I'm saying is when we are walking through these moments of life where things are fine. I'm not experiencing pain and suffering in these moments, but I can't be passive. I have to be built up. You see, I'm filled to the point of fullness through the bread and the water that God gives me. I am satisfied in those things. And when I am fully satisfied in Him, then when I get to the moment of being confronted with the opportunity to compromise, I don't need any of that. There is no room for that in me because I am full. I am full of, from everything that comes from God, everything that he offers his people. I am full of those things. I am nourished. I am experiencing blessing. I am, I am experiencing uh, refreshing, refreshment, renewal, everything that comes from God. My heart is full of those things. And you see, when I come to the moment of being confronted with the opportunity to compromise, I want nothing to do with that. It has nothing to offer me. There's nothing it has to offer that I don't already have in a greater fullness in God. But you see, the, the problem for us as believers sometimes is we are so passive in our relationship with God. We are totally empty spiritually, and then we are confronted with the moment of compromise, and then I start thinking, what am I going to do? What am I going to do with this? I feel pretty spiritually empty. I'm starving myself spiritually. Maybe this has something to offer. You see, we cannot wait till the moment where we are confronted with something to start deciding what we're going to do. Daniel had resolved himself long before being brought into Babylon. He had already resolved in his heart that he was going to live for the city of God. This is the last thing I'll say. You know, as we resolve ourselves to walk and live for the city of God, God has not left us alone in our commitment to walk in his holiness toward his city. He has not left us alone in that. I love in the passage in, um, I think it's Genesis 24, but it talks about uh, how Abraham was about to pass away and he told his servant to go back to his uh, homeland to get a wife for Isaac. In that moment, they, the the servant goes back 
and he finds uh, the wife for Isaac, and uh, he stays there with them for the evening, and he wants to go the next day back to Isaac, and you know their family said, we'll stay here for a few days, and, and then we'll let you go, and he says, I need to go now. And uh, the family says, okay, well, let's bring her in, and we'll ask her what she wants to do. And she said she would go. I can imagine, the Bible doesn't go into detail about this, but I would imagine in that moment she was more than happy to go because the servant was testifying to her of her husband, husband-to-be. You can imagine the servant in that moment, they weren't just talking about random things. I'm sure they had a lot of questions about, well, who is this guy? What is he like? What does he do? Tell me everything about that. You can imagine the servant being there telling uh, Rebecca and her family everything about his master, who would be her husband. You understand, that is exactly what we see in our relationship to Christ and the Spirit of God at work in our hearts. The Bible over and over likens God's church, his people, to being the bride of Christ. And when he left this earth, he said that he would leave us a servant, a counselor, a comforter. And you see, what is happening in this life is, though we are walking through this land of Babylon, this spiritual confusion, this land of idolatry, this land of exalting man and everything within man, the people of God are living for the city of God. They were moving towards that place where we're going to meet Christ in the end. And the comforter, our counselor, is testifying to us now of the Savior that we are going to stand before now. The same way in that moment as the servant was testifying to Rebecca of all the things that were going on in the heart of his master. And she said, yeah, I want to go there. Right now, as we walk towards that final meeting where the bride of Christ, his church, stands before him and is united to him, the Spirit of God is here to testify to our hearts about the goodness of Christ and what it will be like to stand with him and live with him forever. He has not left us alone in this holy pursuit. He has not left us alone in this place of desolation, desolation, this place of Babylon. He has left us one who testifies of the city of God. Not just one time, but on a daily basis, every single moment of every day, he will testify to your heart and mine about the place we are going, about the Savior we uh, will meet one day and stand in his presence. He will tell us of all of those things if we would be willing and resolve ourselves to live for the city of God no matter what we are confronted with. As the worship team comes up this morning, ask yourself this morning, what is the resolution of your heart? Has your heart been resolved to walk for the city of God? Have you made it your purpose? Have you made it your intention on a daily basis to actively pursue the sacred things of God? to step into the presence of the counselor who would testify to you and I of the goodness of our God. That we would resolve ourselves not to be defiled by the things that we see in this city of Babylon everywhere around us. That we would resolve ourselves 
long before we get to the moment of, of compromise, that I have already resolved myself, that I don't care what comes, I don't care whether it offers some sort of uh, financial gain, I don't care whether it offers a position of authority, whatever it is, I will not. Whatever it is, I don't care what it has to offer, I will not defile myself in that way because I am living for the city of God. Whether somebody else thinks that is, that's extreme or not, that doesn't matter to me. Because I will live for the city of God. As we pray this morning, you can come to this side if you have a need. Nobody will come. You can pray by yourself. If you want to come over to this side, uh, somebody will come and pray with you. God, we thank you this morning for the opportunity that we have to walk in you, to live for you, to walk in your spirit. We thank you for the comfort that comes as your spirit testifies to us of all the goodness of our Savior. Father, help us to be people that would resolve ourselves to live for your city. That we wouldn't allow our eyes to be turned to anything that we see in this city of Babylon. Thank you that we don't have to walk in confusion. That we don't have to exalt ourselves. But when we become humble in you, then your word says that you exalt us. Father, help us to walk in the fullness of who you are. We love you today. It's your name we pray. Amen.